On this episode of Healthier Workplaces, we'll hear about industrial hygiene journeys into leadership. I always tell them the caveat to it. I mean, it's not going to be easy, but if you're passionate about it, if you really, really, really want it, um, just, just go for it. I would say the strangest uh, feedback that I received when I told someone that I was an industrial hygienist, they paused for a moment and I thought they were really thinking really hard and they turned around and they said to me, do you clean teeth in the factory? <laughs> she really, um, first of all, created an awareness in me about the importance of emotional intelligence and understanding uh, the elements of emotional intelligence and how I need to lean into my discomfort and better understand how I can uh, improve. Welcome to the Healthier Workplaces Show, a program dedicated to highlighting the efforts of industry professionals who protect our workers and their communities from occupational and environmental hazards. I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Magazine and your host for this new program from AIHA. This week, we meet two professionals whose career journeys took them on the leadership path. I had the chance to speak with Lucinette Alvarado and Courtney Tinner about how their respective career tracks offered leadership opportunities and some of the workplace challenges they faced along the way. We'll also discuss emotional intelligence with AIHA's CEO, Larry Sloan, on this episode of Healthier Workplaces. updated sixth edition of the Noise Manual is available at the AIHA University Bookstore. This edition contains new chapters on impulse noise, phototoxicants, fit testing, and community exposure. Noise is an omnipresent hazard for industrial hygienists and OEHS practitioners. Find the right information with this valuable resource for noise prevention and more in your workplace and communities. Update your noise knowledge today. Available in print and digital formats. Visit AIHA.org slash noise for a free preview. I've been in the profession, industrial hygiene or occupational hygiene, depends on which country you're in in Latin America. Um, I've been doing this for 15 years now. Um, so I'm in that uh, frame between like early career professional going to the mid professional. Um, and over the past 15 years, I've seen a lot of changes in a good way um, for a female Latina into the um, OEHS, Occupational um, Environmental Health and Safety Profession. Um, in the beginning, I remember after I graduated looking for a job in the island because I come born and raised in Puerto Rico. It was hard, hard because it, there was a lot of competition in the island and pretty much the work that I was going to do was basically um, dominated by engineers, HR, um, occupational nurses, those type of departments. So it was very, very hard. 
And that's why I had to make the decision to move to the United States. Um, thankfully, um, I got the opportunity. And I, I first started as a consultant in, in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And that was a challenge <laughs> um, because, you know, a young, uh, like what I call a, a rookie industrial hygienist going into big industries because here in Pittsburgh, um, at the time, now that's changing, but the, the biggest industry was steel. So going through this um, big steel mills and performing noise uh, surveys, um, air sampling, etc. Oh my gosh, I had I had a tough time to to gain that respect. It didn't come easy. It didn't happen quick. Um, because they see you, you know, and they have this stereotype of, you know, she's young, um, she doesn't know what she's doing, um, and also she may not speak English very well. <laughs> um, so fortunately, I mean, I work very, very, very hard to break those stereotypes. Um, yes, I had instances when, um, like, my EHS contacts at the site and even the employees that were, you know, being monitored were kind of like um, uh, difficult <laughs> to, to be uh, uh, diplomatic mm. about it. <laughs> sure, um, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, and they were like made comments. Um, I remember the, the, the funniest, but also the comment that it bothered me the most was from a, a, an EHS professional. Oh boy. Um, we're just like having lunch, do taking a break after whenever we're doing some noise surveys, and um, I was I was kind of a manager at the time, so I had an intern with me. Uh, he was a male, so he was making comments and always directed to the intern, and uh, and I was like, but I'm his, I'm his boss, you know. Um, and then he would say like, oh, it's just Puerto Rico. That's a poor island. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh boy. So we're, we're, we're getting all, all the things in there, throwing, throwing oh a lot. Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. yes and I, I remember imagine. I had my noise dosimeter. Um, I was teaching the intern how to do, um, noise mapping because, you know, just giving him the, the trait and then the knowledge and how to do that. And this same person came. And he took the dosimeter out of my hands. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> really? Oh, that's yeah. crazy. So, so I, okay, so how did you react to that? I'm just. Uh, well, um, I try to be, you know, very patient about it. Um, I know the, the intern that was with me, um, he looked at me and he was like, what's going on? So he tried to pitch in. You know, yeah. trying to see if he can take that unit back. <laughs> um, so he did. Um, he was a big guy to the intern. So um, that's like, I mean, that's probably helpful to have, have yeah, some muscle with you. Too, protected. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I had to complain to the main contact, like my, my client, um, say, hey, I had this situation in your, this site. Um, this is how I handle it. And I think he addressed it. Um, so, but that was the craziest one, the craziest yeah, I mean, one that I I mean, got. that's just so unacceptable on so many levels. It's just crazy. Mm -hmm. But, but the thing is, I suspect though, in the workplace, that's not all that uncommon. You know, I mean, I've, I've seen, mm -hmm. I've, I've, you know, I've seen it as the white male, obviously I, I, I can't totally appreciate what it's like, but I, I see things, you know, and I, and I, I 
it's frustrating for me to watch the, you know these type of incidents happen you know, happen in the space it's just yes awful. so i always say that during my consultant years which were around seven years i developed thick skin um that was a, a, not, a not an easy process um because uh, you're young um and then you you have all these dreams about your career and then you get these stones um, that you have to like overcome. So little by little, I, I developed that tough skin. Um, tough skin also in the weather. <laughs> but here in the US, it opens so many doors um, to the point that I, I, I started like, like taking those open doors. And here I am <laughs> 15 years later. <laughs> wow. um, being at the corporate CIH of a, a, a company that manufactures industrial hygiene equipment, sure, right, which is the coolest job ever uh, for an industrial hygienist. Yeah, um, yeah. And then also be part of the AIHA board of directors. I mean, um, this is just an honor for me, and I'm not stopping. <laughs> I'm gonna try to go up that um, board of directors uh, <laughs> ladder um, nice. to, to see how far I can go. You know, well, and that's and that says a lot too, because you, you know, you you have to have a strong belief in yourself, right? When when you're mm -hmm. faced with those obstacles, you know, and unfortunately, those obstacles occur in the workplace, and they you know they occur in everything, right? Um, you know, so that to stay focused, to to drive yourself through. I mean, you obviously have determination and and talent, because you wouldn't be where you are without talent. Um, but I mean, was that you must have had challenging times, though, right? for sure we're keeping your head above you know all mm -hmm. the fray yes i always um one of my mottos is to never give up um and also like taking every opportunity as you can because i mean the worst case that can happen is either somebody telling you no or like nothing like nothing will happen but at least you tried so that that's always been my my motto since since my young ages when I was a little girl and um, you know a young adult etc. So um, yes, I I don't give up that easy. <laughs> and it pays off, obviously. So 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 you trans you know your career obviously you've you've uh, you know got to a high position, you know, in your, in your corporate status, what you're doing there with, with uh, the SKC organization, but also, you know, getting to the board of directors of, you know, of the industry or organization for your profession, that that's a, that's a big thing to do. You're in a leadership position and, you know, I, I guess I want to get a little more insight of, you know, like you saw the opportunities, right? So obviously, I mean, they were, as opportunities became available because you, you obviously showed the ability to take those opportunities. I mean, nobody would offer mm -hmm. things to somebody they didn't believe was qualified, but still it's, it's still that you were able to recognize that and position yourself. Like it didn't happen by chance. You didn't, you're not just the luckiest person on earth. You actually, you know, were able mm -hmm. to see it, you know, you, you were qualified and you got yourself there. So tell us a little just just about that whole leadership path. Let's talk first with AIHA. So um, once I was a, like a full member, because in Puerto Rico, I was part of the student um, okay. chapter. Um, and then I was like active um, within the, um, yeah, within that group, that chapter and doing some internal events and so forth. 
but once I moved to the U.S., I was able to be a full membership, and I'm very um, curious about things, <laughs> um, and it's something that it's a nature of me, and it, it's just I like to to be involved in in things that I like, of course. So I got the opportunity looking to see how can I be more involved within AIHA, and they have a, a special interest group, which is a SIG, an acronym-wise. Acronym so it was called the Minority SIG, Minority Special Interest Group. So I was like, huh, I mean, I'm a minority in the United States, so why not? So I got involved with the uh, group, and that's how I started my, my volunteer um, work within AIHA. And um, I, I was there for in that group for six years plus minus, and I became the director of communications within that group, which is a person that, you know, create newsletters and send emails out and whatnot. Um, and that's how I started. And my journeys in industrial hygiene started with a conversation that I had with a professor. I was at a point in my career where I was trying to decide what I was going to do next. I had a bachelor's in chemistry from The Ohio State University, but I came to realize that I did not want to be a bench chemist any longer. I started taking some health and safety courses because I had uh, a team member get injured uh, during uh, my tenure as a chemist and was pretty concerned. Like I always thought about what we could have done differently or what the company could have done differently to have prevented this particular in injury. I had the conversation with my professor. He said, you know what? I think you would be good uh, for the field of industrial hygiene. He said, have you ever heard of it? And actually I'd never heard of an industrial hygienist. He said, well, do some research on it and of course he discussed and and told me what the career profession embodied and i actually was pretty sold after that conversation with him and the next step i looked into programs where there was a graduate program in occupational and environmental health sciences i applied to purdue university and the rest is history, and I became an industrial hygienist. Your original path when you went to, for your undergrad, you really thought you would be a, a chemist, right? Or be doing doing bench bench work, chemistry in some corporate setting. Is that what, what you envisioned, or? Well, actually, I really envisioned becoming a doctor of pharmacy. However, I was not able to uh, gain entrance into a doctor of pharmacy program. At the time when I applied, it was a very competitive uh, industry profession at that time and program. And I had to think of what could I do next? I had so I had accumulated so many credits. I had taken the general uh, chemistry organic chemistry and the only thing that was left was like physical chemistry so i became a chemist it was not uh an industrial hygienist that was not what i had my my sight set upon aiha is just phenomenal i would say that my role in leadership and specifically leadership in industrial hygienists started years ago when i became a member of aiha the organization provides so many opportunities uh, to volunteer in volunteer 
in the volunteer communities. And that is where I started. AIHA provides a framework. And in that capacity, I flourished. I was able to use the leadership skills that I developed by becoming the chair of the minority special interest group. I was the chair of the noise committee and I transferred those leadership skills to my uh, on the job workplace. And I was able to show my team members and my superiors that I was able to problem solve and, and that I could lead a team in, in industrial hygiene. So that, so that leadership role, um, I'm assuming it comes fairly comfortable for you because uh, you, because you pursued it or, or, or is this again, another thing where opportunity arose and you, you know, and you went down the path or did you, did you see yourself in the leadership role, I guess, early on in your career is a better way to phrase that. Oh, absolutely. I did see myself in a leadership role because opportunities would come my way. And I would, I would always accept those opportunities. I, I would accept the challenge. So I did see myself uh, pro progressing in industrial hygiene in a management role. And in the manufacturing facility, sometimes you just don't see a lot of women in, in various roles. You don't see a lot of women engineers. You definitely don't see women industrial hygienists. So as someone right out of graduate school, I landed in a heavy manufacturing industry. And at that time, of course, right out of graduate school, I'm not the oldest person in the room either. So there were challenges, uh, being a woman, being extremely young, having the knowledge, but not being taken seriously that I could actually prevent illnesses and injuries in the workplace. So that was an initial challenge. I really had to transfer those collaborative leadership skills that I learned at AIHA and use them on my job. I had to really engage those around me to collaborate so we could solve complex industrial hygiene problems. So one of the things, obviously, is when you're a newcomer, you don't have the field experience yet. Mm -hmm. um, and that's one of those things you only get with time. You know, so that, so that that's a challenge to overcome in, the, I would assume, in the workplace when you're dealing with other people who view you as maybe like she doesn't she doesn't have any experience. She's just coming out of college. Um, and, and how how do you uh, turn that opinion on people that maybe, uh, you know, are viewing you as a little bit too young or too inexperienced to be able to you know carry yourself there? Well, I would say that I always had the face of of concern, uh, the face that I actually cared. I think I had to use some of those soft skills uh, to impress upon those that I was there to uh, aid in protecting their health and welfare in the workplace. It, it took a lot of work. It, it took a lot of time. It, it took a lot of relationship building. I actually had to go and spend time with different departments and employees in different departments and actually walk like really just horrible areas <laughs> to show them that that I actually I cared about their concerns and that I had their best interests but it, it but it did take a lot of time
When we come back, I'll be speaking with Larry Sloan about the important role emotional intelligence plays in both our professional and personal lives. Stay with us. In today's shifting work environment, it can be tough to schedule in a half or full day professional development course, or PDC, not to mention the time needed to travel to and from the classroom. AIHA University is excited to offer new virtual options for some of our more popular courses that are essential to your growth as an OEHS professional. The benefits of a virtual PDC are many. Consider no travel is required. Learning can come directly to you at your home or office. Industry experts deliver live demonstrations via up-to-date video conference technology, a full audio and video experience. You'll experience the same group activities, practice exercises, and breakout sessions as you would in person. Miss something or want to review a particular point? Full access to the course recording is provided post-event. Virtual PDCs are eligible for three and a half to seven contact hours towards your certification maintenance. Your budget will thank you. No need to worry about travel or accommodation expenses. You only need the time and space to focus. AIHA's virtual PDCs are happening soon. Select your course today at bit.ly slash fallpdcs. We'll see you online soon. So we'd like to welcome AIHA CEO, Larry Sloan to the program. Hi, Larry. Hello, Bob, how are you? Great, great, nice to have you here. So I, I know today's topic that you'd like to discuss is emotional intelligence. So how does that come into play and uh, where's your interest in this, Larry? Yeah, thanks, Bob. This is a very important topic to me on multiple levels. I was first introduced to emotional intelligence through uh, one of my former executive coaches. And as we were talking about my performance at AIHA, I had just started at the organization a year or two prior. She suggested that we frame the context of our coaching relationship through the lens of EI. And so she's really the one that introduced me to emotional intelligence. And she gave me a couple of reference books to review. And that's really what got me started on this journey. Daniel Goleman is kind of the uh, grandfather, if you will, of emotional intelligence, but there are many books that are out there in the marketplace that discuss EI in more practical terms. And the more I dug into it, the more I realized the value of it, not only to my uh, role at AIHA, but also to my role uh, within my family, uh, you know, with my partner, as well as with uh, friends. And that's really what got me excited about the journey and starting to proselytize it within the AIHA professional network. So, so this is more than just a, a career uh, interest for you. This obviously is a life interest. Um, it is. So, so, so how how are you bringing it uh, to the AIHU organization? And uh, you know, let's let's get into some of the specifics of uh, uh, where you've actually taken this since you're uh, you've taken this role as CEO at AIHA. Sure, sure. So, I started to take a, a very basic presentation that I developed. Uh, on the road. And so when I've traveled around to our local sections, uh, I have given a, an overview of emotional intelligence, which has been very well received. I also delivered a presentation on emotional intelligence 
uh, at our leadership workshop, which is an annual event that's open to the volunteer leaders of our volunteer groups, our technical committees and business committees, as well as our local section officers. And just before the pandemic, I traveled out to Chicago and I did a session on EI to one of our corporate or organizational members in the pharmaceutical space. And so I've tried to uh, really indoctrinate the AIHA membership through a variety of forum to uh, introduce them to the concepts of EI and how they can apply it in their daily lives. So let's let's st take a step back and uh, I'd like to hear your definition of emotional intelligence. You know, how how how, you, how would you define it to the audience? I would define emotional intelligence as the yin to the yang of, of IQ, intellectual quotient. And so IQ is obviously very important in, in anyone's career. Uh, that's kind of the knowledge, the skills, the abilities that are baked into uh, what you do in your vocation. But the emotional intelligence to me is kind of that squishier stuff that kind of surrounds the IQ that you bring to the table. And, you know, there's a lot of studies that have been done that talk about the importance of, of emotional intelligence or emotional quotient, EQ. And by the way, EI and EQ are kind of interchangeable terms. But, you know, when you talk about one's promotion uh, capability in the, uh, in the workforce, they say that uh, EI or EQ accounts for more than IQ as you make your way up the ladder, as you're being promoted within an organization uh, or transitioning from one job to another. So to me, EI is all about recognizing your own emotions and those of others, managing your own emotions, and then using that to manage that social construct between you and somebody else. And that, that's an area that I think many of us uh, could stand improvement in, right? I mean, we, we all uh, we all struggle with that. That's uh, controlling your emotions, you know, acting mature, you know, be, just being able to read the room even, right, when, when you're dealing yes. with other people. You know, and what's interesting, Bob, about that is that, you know, when you're in the heat of the moment, that's when you need emotional intelligence the most, because that's when your amygdala is going to take over your brain and is going to basically control your reaction to a stressful situation. When the seas are calm, the proverbial, everybody's a good sailor when the seas are calm, you don't need the emotional intelligence. But when you're faced with some sort of stress, that's when you're up against the situation where you need to really deploy those resources and manage your emotions in your head and how you're interacting with the other person when you're dealt with a stressful situation. Yeah, and that's really the key, um, like, like you mentioned. When everything's going great, we're all happy and uh, smiley, but certainly, you know, in the workplace, in, in your general life, in your personal relationships, you do come to times and periods where there's stress and there, you know, things aren't that mm -hmm. easy. Um, so some points that, you know, that you've learned uh, in your uh, emotional intelligence uh, journey here, uh, what, what are some of the takeaways that, you know, we could uh, discuss here? So the first thing I'd like to say is before we get into the elements of emotional intelligence is that I think that the, the virtual and even the hybrid uh, workforce uh, paradigm, if you will, has really hurt EI because you don't have that full exposure to body language and mannerisms that you have in an in-person um, dynamic. And so when you're on a, a Zoom call or a Teams call or one of the other social platforms, you know, you miss that kind of richness of interaction between two or more individuals. And so that's why for me personally, I often find it challenging to be able to read, quote unquote, the proverbial room when folks have their cameras off, for example, right? You're missing that social construct that is so needed in understanding the dynamics between individuals. But I would say that one of the first things that I mentioned earlier is that when you're dealt with incoming stimuli, stressful or not, 
The stressful stimuli will short circuit the, the, the cortex, which is where the higher level thinking occur. And you're really not gonna have that time to analyze the incoming information that the thinking side of your brain really needs to decide how to respond. And so the amygdala takes over and the amygdala is basically that kind of gut reaction when you're confronted with some sort of a stressor, like, oh my God, there's a tiger that's ready to leap on me and, and, and bite me. Uh, or there's a fire in my house and I need to escape as quickly as possible. This is where you short circuit the higher cortex portion of your brain. It's disabled and the amygdala takes over. Now, obviously the amygdala has a very important role when you're faced with a life-threatening situation but in the normal course of business, typically your life and your sustainability is not threatened. And so you want to make sure that you are controlling your amygdala and processing that incoming stimuli to the best of your ability. And so there are four aspects is the way that I like to define emotional intelligence. The first one is self-awareness of your own emotions and recognizing that your emotions do not define who you are. Number two is self-management of your emotions recognizing that the emotions are going to happen and being un being comfortable with being uncomfortable with your emotions. So you're going to experience emotions of self-doubt, self-worth, anger, frustration, anxiety, um, you know, any one of these negative emotions. How do you manage your uh, reaction in the view of these emotions that you're being faced with? Number three is social awareness, which is recognizing the emotions of others. And that could be through what the other person says or their body language, which again is compromised when you have the virtual relationship. And then finally, number four is the relationship management that you have with the other individual. How do you foster a productive, constructive relationship with the other individual when you might sense tension between the two people? So those are the four elements of EI. Self-awareness and self-management are internal social awareness and relationship management are external between you and somebody else. So I'm assuming there's, uh, there's skill drills you need to practice this. Obviously you don't just, right. you don't just read a book and suddenly you're emotionally, uh, your emotional intelligence has just risen uh, many points. There, th this is an ongoing development process for all of us, correct? It absolutely is. And for each one of these four elements, there are some strategies that you can deploy and I can kind of walk you through a couple of the strategies for each of the four elements to help the audience understand some practicalities too. What does it mean to become self-aware? What does that really mean? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I like to view in terms of this is that you wanna watch and check and understand yourself and you wanna feel your emotions physically. What that means is that, again, be able to feel uncomfortable with feeling, be able to feel, excuse me, comfortable with feeling uncomfortable when you sense that ripple effect of your emotion. If you are feeling anxious at, about a particular situation, you wanna make sure that you're letting yourself feel anxious for a period of time. And don't judge that feeling. Lean into your discomfort with these uh, negative emotions, if you will. And one we even say, maybe they're not negative emotions, they're just uncomfortable emotions. So feeling more comfortable with leaning into these uncomfortable emotions is the first stage to feeling emotionally connected with these feelings. There are, they say there are lots of different types of emotions. Um, I have a, a chart that I like to refer to uh, that's based on one of the books that I've read, which says that there are five different, if you will, um, emotions that one can experience as a human being. You can be happy, you can be sad, you can be angry, you can be afraid, 
and you can be ashamed. And I think when you're in that happy column, whether you're at a low, a medium, or a high intensity of that feeling of happiness, then I think that the higher cortex basically assumes control of your brain. You don't have to worry so much about that gut reaction. But however, when you are sad or angry or afraid or ashamed, that's where the amygdala has an opportunity to hijack the higher thinking of the cortex. And that's where you have to basically feel a little less uncomfortable with those, if you will, uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. And all, all of us, I mean, all of us, I think, do by, by nature feel uncomfortable in those, you know, those, all those situations you described. Um, not, not an easy thing to do. So, um Again, how, what, what's the process that you've been following to, to, to develop this? Because I, yes. I'm, very fa I'm fascinated by it, to be honest. So number one, breathing. You know, a lot of us wear smartwatches and they have alarms that basically allow us to um, remind us about different things throughout the day. And I have a watch which basically has a little tickler. So every hour it reminds me to deep breathe. And that's a really great mechanism for me if I'm in the middle of my day and I'm feeling anxious or stressed about something. Reminding myself to take some deep breaths every hour on the hour is a good opportunity for me to check in myself, especially if I'm de dealing with a situation, you know, where I'm being confronted with an uncomfortable emotion in a particular situation. So I think breathing right, breathing regularly, taking those deep breaths, a count of four in, holding the breath for four seconds, and then a count of four out. It's the four, four, four philosophy um, often helps. Sleeping right, of course, making sure that you uh, clean up your sleep hygiene and um, follow protocols that allow you to get to sleep within a reasonable amount of time. And then of course, exercising. And exercise can be any one of things. I'm a big advocate of just taking walks uh, at the end of the day, just to kind of clear my head. So these are some things that you can do physically to help your psyche better deal with those uncomfortable emotions. The other one that you've heard about from probably your childhood is counting to 10. If you are faced with an uncomfortable confrontation, count to 10 before you respond. And that's something that we don't do. We're so quick to not allow there to be a gap, to be there, to be there, uh, to be a, uh, a pause, if you will, in, in the time in which you hear something and then you respond. Taking that opportunity to just take a deep breath and count to 10 before you respond can really help you respond in the appropriate way. Number three. I, think, I was going to say that that is something that and I just just demonstrated how I couldn't allow a gap there. I, I think that's something in just in conversational, uh, you know, our society today, we tend to do that. We tend to want to fill every empty space, every pause once, you know, we want to fill fill it with something with sound, whether it's meaningful or not. We you know, we really do. And, and I'm trying to be better about allowing there to be pauses and allowing uh, the other person to finish his or her thought before I jump in. I'm very sensitive about not talking over people. And so I try to do as much listening as I can and waiting for that person to take a natural pause. Now, I will tell you, Bob, you're very good at this, but there are other people, I never know when they're gonna stop talking. And so I never know when I can jump in. And so I'm kind of like waiting for them to take a pause so that I can jump in to make my point and then I have to say, well, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but may I take a turn now and express my thoughts? The last point I'll make here is just taking control of your self-talk. Try to be, and this is something that I have a real tough time on with myself. Take control of your self-talk and try to be kinder to yourself and don't take yourself so seriously if you're feeling awkward about a particular emotion and how it's expressing itself in your body. Let it pulsate through your body. 
accept it for what it is and move on. I'm going to, I'm going to share something with the audience and this is not a criticism, but I have found that with very uh, intelligent and very technical people, scientific people, and this is particular to the AIHA membership that I have found. It is harder for me sometimes to know when some of our members are taking that pause because they're so excited about what they're talking about and they go on and there's parenthetical expressions and asides and clauses that they like to fit into their dialogue. And so sometimes for me, it's a little bit of a challenge as to when can I interject so that I feel like I'm not talking over them. Well, as you pointed out too, it becomes even more challenging when we're doing it remotely. You know, certainly phone calls maybe are the worst. Well, no, you know what I think the worst is? Is when you're not directly conversing, but you're texting. Te sure. To me, texting is, is the most dangerous method of communication because you lose all those inflections. You lose, you know, you lose context. In, you I know, would a text conversation is dangerous. I would agree with you. I think texting would probably be, you know, the forum where you have the least interaction in terms of mm. multiple levels of engagement with the other individual. And then you have the virtual platforms where their cameras turned off. So you're hearing them, but you're maybe not necessarily uh, hearing the inflection as you might if you were in person. A lot of times when you're on camera like this, even some of the inflections are not transmitted as clearly as they might be in person. Sure. And of course you miss the body language. And then of course, mm -hmm. you know, then when you're in person, you have that full richness of both the verbal and the nonverbal cues. So, so how, since we are, you know, for the most part in a virtual world now, or at least that's something that's, I believe is, is going, going forward, we're going to be doing this. You know, we're going to have virtual phone calls. We're going to have virtual meetings. Um, you know, there, I, I believe that's just the way it is. So are, are there any ways that we can help uh, improve our ability to read those cues in these remote uh, interactions? Well, I would first suggest that if you're having a conversation with somebody that they turn their camera on. And I think that's important. If you're in a large group setting and you have Q&A at the end of a presentation, I think it's respectful to have the individual who's asking the question to turn their camera on for the time that they're asking the question and listening to the response so that the presenter can kind of read to the best of his or her ability the body language of the person who's asking the question. And then as they're responding to this person, they can kind of get a sense that they're actually hitting the mark and addressing the question. So that's point number one. Point number two is that if you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with an individual, whether it's your manager, your supervisor, uh, somebody who's in a lateral relationship with you or a direct report, somebody who's subordinate to you, you really want to emphasize the importance of having the camera on. I do that at AIHA. I want to make sure that when I'm having my one-on-one -on -one conversations um, with my direct reports or with my senior leadership team, that everybody has their camera on, at least when they're speaking to me, so that I have that richness of experience and I can understand mm -hmm. whether or not I'm really effectively communicating with that person. Makes total sense. And the most, I think the most awkward time is when you have your camera on and the other individual doesn't, because now you've pretty much, you're sharing a lot of cues, but not seeing any in return. And to me, that that's a, always an awkward conversation when, when, we, when I have those. I think so. I think so. And I try to have my camera on all the time, you know, quite frankly, over the last, what, almost three years now. I'm just getting sick of looking at myself because I'm just so used to seeing myself on camera and how my mannerisms seem to be exaggerated in my mind because, you know, when you're in person, you're not looking at yourself. Right. So for me, being on camera has become a more natural phenomena, but it's not something that I particularly enjoy. I much prefer the in-person sitting across the table from somebody. And that's something that I've learned to become a little 
more comfortable with in this new world. Yeah, I totally get that. We've uh, I started doing online training back in I think 2016. So okay. I so I I've been doing this for almost you know going on you know maybe six years now five and a half six years of this interaction so the zoom meetings for me preceded the pandemic we've been doing it for a long time but i still don't feel comfortable looking at myself on camera you know i find i find that my own image distracts me and i always like to you know, like set it up in such a way that my image is minimized or off to the sides of just seeing the person i'm engaging with so it's more realistic more like an in-person conversation where you don't see yourself Absolutely. And, you know, on that note right now, so I can see myself, I can see you. Um, and this is really helpful because when you talk about then the third element where, okay, you're feeling a little less uncomfortable with your emotions, you're figuring out strategies and techniques that work for you to control your emotions, right? But then what about the emotions of other people? And so having that dual camera interface where situational awareness really is everything. Timing really is important in terms of knowing when you can interject your thought or when you need to step back and let the other person express their thoughts and really being present. Do not multitask, especially when you're on a Zoom call. You want to make sure you're giving the other person your full attention. It is so easy when you're on a call to be doing things on the side, especially when your camera's off and you're not fully present and the other person knows it. And we've all done multitasking. We have our we have our phones on the side, you know, and then you get a text message and you're on a call with somebody and you have this um, uh, this compulsion, this need to check the text message while you're in the call or uh, interaction with the other person. And that really is detrimental to the relationship and the interaction between you and the other person. Uh, and there's the verbal communication. And of course, there's the nonverbal communication that you have that richness when you have two people and with their cameras turned on at the same time. So you really have to be fully present and try to distract yourself from all those external uh, influences that, that could adversely affect the way you're interfacing with that person. Yeah, multiple screens are, are not helpful either. When you have a, a computer station with multiple screens, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's almost this, there's this magnetic draw to have other windows open while, while you're in the call and try to multitask. And I totally agree. You, you, if you're not focused on that conversation, it, it, it becomes apparent. It does. And the other thing that I try to do, and I'm doing this with you right now, is that you're making a point and I'm trying to show you a little bit of body language where I'm sure. nodding. I'm saying, mm hmm, if I'm agreeing with you, I'm giving you a chance to express yourself. And these are little subtle cues that show that I'm trying to be as engaged with you as possible while we're on this uh, virtual platform. And which which honestly makes the other party comfortable and, and feel like they're actually connecting, you know, and that connection is everything. Right. I mean, that's. Yeah. in communication. Yeah. And especially, you know, when you're dealing with people with lots of different personalities and lots of different ways of expressing themselves, I really try hard to create a cadence between myself and the other person so that I don't feel like that I'm threatening them, that I feel like that I'm taking ownership of what they're saying. I'm taking it seriously. And I'm also trying to uh, understand what it is that they're saying. And so this kind of gets into the last element which is how you establish and maintain a positive relationship with somebody, even if you disagree fundamentally with some of the things that they're saying. So, for example, I try to be open and curious about what the other person is saying, even if I disagree. I don't want to give mixed signals. So, you know, I'm not the best of actors, so I have to be careful about my body language or my facial expressions so that they don't contradict. Yeah, I'm saying, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but then I have this kind of angst look on my face that's going to basically betray what it is that's coming out of my mouth. 
I also want to make sure that I'm explaining decisions or my perspectives to the other person so they at least understand where I'm coming from. And if I'm hearing something that's perhaps contradictory to my own thinking, I might want to repeat back what I've heard to that person so they feel like I'm invested in at least trying to understand their perspective. And then the last thing is just practicing empathy, helping the other person understand, you know, I may not agree with you fundamentally, but I can empathize from where you're coming from and I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. Yeah, and that's key because honestly, we're not supposed to agree all the time and there's nothing wrong with disagreeing, but at least, you know, that engagement and that and that uh, bilateral communication is everything, right? That's, that's, that's really how you, you move the ball forward with people. Right. And when you talk about fostering that relationship between two people, some people um, consider empathy to be kind of a fifth element of EI. I consider empathy to be integral to that relationship building element. That's why I talk about the four elements of EI. And I kind of bake empathy into the number four, which is building that social relationship between people. I like the expression, ego is not your, ami is not your amigo. Ego is not your friend. If you have a very strong ego, try to put a cap on it when you're dealing with somebody else, because they're going to be able to perceive that you have a strong ego and they may not be as forthcoming or forthright with you because they know that your ego might trump how you interface with that person. You talk about hitting the pause button and letting the other person express his or her thoughts, remembering the golden rule, treat other people the way you would like to be treated. It's a little bit trite and making other people feel better after your interaction with them. However, you come to terms with the conversation, making them feel like you've heard them, they've heard you and you respect what they're saying. So that's, all some great advice on emotional intelligence. Uh, Larry Sloan, CEO of AIHA, thanks so very much for taking time out of, I know what is a very busy day for you, <laughs> and uh, joining us on our, our Healthier Workplaces show. Bob, it's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to coming back on another topic. Thank you. That's our show for this week. Next up, we'll discuss the topic of empathy with our guests, Tim Paz and Amy McKay. Thanks again for watching. Until next time, I'm Bob Krell. Stay healthy.